welcome to Podcast of Ideas. I'm Alistair Donald, Associate Director at the Academy of Ideas and co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival. The big news this week has been the decision by the Westminster-based UK government to refuse royal assent to a bill passed in the Scottish Parliament. The bill on gender recognition reform in Scotland would have authorised the issue of gender recognition certificates, or GRCs, and then that would have, in turn, created conflicts with UK-wide law. This bill and the refusal of assent have both proved controversial, as I'm sure won't have escaped your notice. I'll be talking through the implications with my Academy of Ideas colleagues Claire Fox, Ella Whelan and Rob Lyons. But firstly, I caught up with Susan Smith, a director of the campaign group For Women Scotland. Welcome to the podcast of Ideas, Susan. Thanks for giving us some of your time. I know you're incredibly busy at the moment. I want to get your insights on the gender recognition reform legislation. But before that, I thought it would be just quite useful, actually, if you could give us uh, a little bit of information about For Women Scotland, when and why you were set up, and what have you been doing in the period up to when this legislation has come around? Well, we were set up in 2018 after the first Scottish consultation um, because we felt it had really gone under the radar and there hadn't been any discussion in the press or anything like that. So we thought there was a a real need for a forward-facing organisation that would be able to set out the case for women's rights and the potential impact on women's rights and um, so we got a small group together in 2018 and started to look at areas we could um, challenge or highlight and um, it's got bigger and bigger and bigger. Good. Well, just to, to skip then to the to the legislation that's gone through the Scottish Parliament just before Christmas, and there's been so many claims and counterclaims about this legislation. I thought actually it would be just quite useful if you could tell us what actually is in the legislation and what do you think the impact of it will be, what, what the concerns that it creates for, for Women Scotland? So the legislation was essentially opening up the process of obtaining a GRC. And it was taking them away any sort of any process, any checks, any safeguards, any third party author validations. And it had been limited to a very tight group of people with gender dysphoria. And now it was going to be open and accessible to anybody over the age of 16, ordinarily resident in Scotland or have been born in Scotland. There are a lot of questions that were not addressed even about that in the um, process through the stages of the committee and parliament. What was meant by ordinarily resident in Scotland was one of the questions. There was also a question of what would happen if somebody who was born in England applied for one in Scotland and would they be able to change their English birth certificate? And the evidence from Westminster in recent weeks was to say that no, they wouldn't. So there were people who were going to have one legal status on one side of the border and one legal status on another side. All of these things could have been ironed out. Then to go further with the bill, I mean, they don't mention once the word trans or transgender in that bill. So they say this is about trans people. It's not, and there's no definition of what it means to be trans. They also 
had no idea actually of what a GRC did. We asked successive ministers if they what they thought the effects of getting a GRC were. And what we hear a lot from supporters of the government and supporters of the bill is that it just allows you to change your birth, marriage and death certificate. But actually, what we were concerned by was the impact on legal rights. And that was one reason why we had brought um, a judicial review last year about the gender representation on public boards. We won an initial review because the Scottish government had initially conflated two protected characteristics. They conflated sex and gender reassignment and said that for the purposes of the bill, any woman was defined by somebody who identified as a woman, one of those circular, circular sort of definitions, and it was reliant on their electricity bill or their pronouns. Gender representation on public boards was supposed to achieve 50-50 balance on public boards. And we took it to court. They, um, The highest court, the court of session, the inner court of the court of session found that they'd exceeded their um, competence by doing this because in redefining a protected characteristic under the Equality Act, they had strayed into matters that they were not um, competent to legislate on. And the judgment said that the guidance should be struck out. The Scottish government then came back with revised guidance that said that women were biological women as per the Equality Act and people who had got a GRC. So male people who had got a GRC and changed their legal sex to female. But it excluded people who were um, covered by gender reassignment who identified as women. So what the government did at that point, they went to court and argued that GRC gave someone a different legal status. So they actually, in a way, made made the case for us and for the UK government because they were the people who went into the the court in Scotland and said, no, having a GRC makes a material difference to your status under law. And that's the real issue. And that's uh, when you put that together with the legislation on gender reform, then that creates the contradiction uh, within the law that then conflicts with the UK equalities legislation. In terms of uh, why the SNP have, have taken these measures and the, the legitimacy actually of, of pushing through the legislation, because some people have said, well, it wasn't uh, an issue uh, in, in the election. They didn't have it in their manifesto. I mean, there's a bit of a dispute on these things. But what's your take on that? And it seems to have emerged very rapidly into the public view, but presumably it's been there and these arguments have been bubbling up for quite a while before it got to such public attention. Yes, I mean, some of the lobby groups have been working on this for the better part of a decade, I would say. There was representation made in Westminster in 2015, where several of the groups wanted to remove some of the sex-based exceptions in the Equality Act. I think um, Equality Network, Scottish Trans Alliance, who are very important in the, the Scottish process and in the drafting of this bill, one of the groups who wanted to remove these these exceptions in the Equality Act. Once they did not get that, they almost then turned it around and started to argue that the exceptions were meaningless and 
didn't right. apply. So they cha- they slightly changed their argument at that point. And that then fed into getting a GRC won't mean anything because these these exceptions mean nothing. So it's been going on a long time. And it's one of the reasons why I think women's organisations like ours have been so dubious about their motivation and dubious about what they say, because the story the story switches and changes all the time. But I think what they were trying to do initially was um, you may have come across what is known as the Denton's playbook. Denton's is a law firm and they had been advising how to get this sort of legislation, slip it through under the radar. And this is what they'd done in countries like Ireland. They'd hitched it on to things like abortion rights or they hitch it on to equal marriage and they make it another equal equalities um, human rights issue and they don't fully explain it and they use buzzwords like international best practice and they use a lot of emotive appeals and they also use the tactic of no debate that we wouldn't discuss this because it was too it was too humiliating too degrading to have to debate your existence was the phraseology that tended to be used I think for a very long time, politicians especially were absolutely terrified of standing up and saying anything. The longer this has gone on and the more the absurdities come out and the more we see the effects of self-ID in policy, and this has been actually possibly a long-term mistake on the part of the lobby groups because they brought this in in policy or persuaded many organisations to adopt this in policy. So, for example, in the Scottish Prison Service, the Scottish Prison Service was one of the first to go, largely because, sadly, people don't care about incarcerated women. But they brought these things in in policy. And then I thought, I think they were planning to argue, well, see, self-ID already works. It already works in the prisons. It already works in the rape crisis centres. So we're just tidying up the law a bit. But actually, the longer this has gone on, we've seen that the policy hurts women. So when a policy hurts women, it seems reckless then to change the law to reflect this this very dangerous policy. Yeah. And it does seem that these processes, both in terms of embedding it within these agencies, uh, such as the prison service, or even in terms of the way that the discussion has moved through the various stages of the the bill through the Scottish Parliament, has been um, a very selective consultation process, to say the least, which uh, seems to favour some people and and exclude some others. But I just wanted to ask: now that the the bill has been passed and we've got the situation with the UK, the Westminster government uh, issuing a Section thirty five note. How is the response uh, coming from the the Scottish government in terms of their, uh, you know, what what is their ability to uh, resist this now? I mean, is it almost certainly going to judicial review? Well, the Section 35 has been issued and so the bill doesn't pass. The Scottish government have the option now to amend it if they want to and they could try to bring it within competence. The noises that I've heard from the Scottish government are not particularly hopeful that they're going to do that. And they also seem rather indignant. They, they, they're rehearsing a lot of mock indignation. 
and they want Alistair Jack to tell them how to fix the bill. Now, Alistair Jack, I think, is just taking the view that it's not up to him to tell them how to fix their own legislation. It's a devolved parliament and they should be able to take care of these things. The committee and the minister were told this was a problem. They were told way, way back and told repeatedly. I mean, the EHRC has, has been telling them throughout the past year that there were going to be effects on the Equality Act. So they did know and they chose to do it anyway. So if they want to fix it, they need to go back to lawyers and they need to go back to the EHRC. They're trying to have it as a bit of a constitutional barney with Westminster. But um, I think Alistair Jack is probably quite right to stay out of it because it's, as he says, it's not up to him to tell them how to fix it. I think a lot of them don't want to make changes. There are some especially on that committee, there are some real zealots. Um, Maggie Chapman, for example, thinks the bill didn't go far enough. She wants small children to be able to change their legal sex. And she wants all sorts of other, she wants non-binary recognised and all sorts of, all sorts of things. So that committee is not willing to compromise anyway. The lobby groups, the Quality Network put out a thread that basically said, sour grapes but it basically said oh it looks as though there's nothing we can do so this is just awful because it's not going to pass now it's very odd because we have here a government and lobby groups who are claiming these are desperately marginalized people who just need a simpler less degrading process and I think if they were talking about not opening out the process of course they wouldn't necessarily be creating issues with the Equality Act. So they could have it apply to the same group of people, but they could work out, you know, a better system with the panel, for example. The fact that they're not willing to do that, I think, suggests that this has never been about the people they were claimed to be so worried about. It was, it's about power, it's about making point, and it's about people, I think, who are who are fundamentally opposed to, to women's rights in some instances, which is very yeah. frightening, but I think there is, an, there is an element of that. So they're all sounding quite as though they're digging in. Um, they won't be able to pass the bill. They can't pass it. It won't get royal assent. So what they now have to do, if they choose to, they can raise a judicial review And that would have to be on the process. So it would have to look at the arguments that were made in the UK government's document as to why they were going to issue this order. And if the process is found to be sound, it has nothing to do with the merits or demerits of the bill. If the process was sound, then that is it. Lord Hope, who, of course, was the deputy chair of the Supreme Court, thinks that the, the arguments are sound. And he says that he thinks the Scottish government would only have a very small chance of success if they did try to raise a judicial review. It would also drag on for a long time and it would cost a lot of money. And that would be taxpayers' money. So the the rational and the correct thing that the Scottish government could do if they believe this is such an important area would be to go back and do this properly as they've been told right from the start. If they don't want to do that, then it suggests they are just determined to ram through this particularly hideous bill in its current form. And and, and they they can't do that, which is a huge relief to women in Scotland. But 
um, obviously has made some of them very angry. And just finally, I mean, that that fact that they, they can't do it um, to no little extent seems to be because the work that organisations like yourselves for Women in Scotland have done has, I think, mo- more than ever for this issue, become one that's made it very public issue as opposed to one that's conducted amongst uh, lobby groups or, 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 or small interest groups that are, are opposed to uh, the, the situations. This is, it seems to me that in Scotland now, this has become very much a public issue. Is, is that your reading of it? Yeah, I think it. I think it has, and that's very kind of you, Sam. I mean, I when we started, it was really quite. It was quite scary, and as I said, there weren't many politicians who were willing to speak up, and there weren't many people. Certainly, in in certain professions, it was really hard. Um, it certainly helped, you know, having people like J.K. Rowling being a Scottish woman and speaking out, and then founding Byra's place, and that's all brought a level of attention and there were some amazing politicians um Joanna Cherry um Joanne Lamont um Joe McAlpine who who really made headway and actually in some cases I mean Joan McAlpine was maneuvered out of her seat by the SNP over this the way this has been done by the SNP has been pretty pretty appalling they have they have been quite vicious with people within their party who stood out. But I, I think, you know, if if I were Nicola Sturgeon and I was running around waving my arms in the air, claiming I'm a feminist to my fingertips, I would look at the women in my own party who, who, who were opposed, Joanna, Ash, Joan, um, Annabelle Ewing, people who are serious, clever politicians, um, Ruth McGuire's number empathetic tended to be you know have have great track records on women's issues on feminism on policy and I think you know at some point you would have to say why are these very important very serious politicians why do they think I am wrong and and talk to them but the thing is, she has refused to do that. She is only speaking to people who tell her that she's right and she's marvellous. And and I think that's another thing that it wider, it's highlighted that there's an issue with how Scotland has been governed by its first minister at the moment, that she is not somebody who is taking a collegiate or a broad approach to formulating policy. And that's concerning. I think that's one of the things that's uh, been particularly interesting about the last period is that it really has brought to the wider public's attention the way that some of these devolved institutions and executives work and how much divorced some of that work is from the public and and uh, the people that vote for for people that are in yeah. the Scottish Parliament. So it sounds like this has got a while to run yet. So maybe we're maybe we'll be back speaking to you again, Susan, in the in the fairly near future to see uh, what's the latest and how it's how it's proceeded. Okay, let me turn now to my Academy of Ideas colleagues. Today I've got with me Claire Fox, Rob Lyons, and Ella Whelan uh, to talk through some of the implications of this legislation and maybe to reflect a little bit on what uh, Susan's uh, told us. So, Rob, maybe I can turn to you first as our man in Scotland, as it were. Um, 
How have you assessed the mood? I mean, it's seemed a very strange period. Very much this, this stuff has come to public attention, caused a lot of uproar. Some people are questioning why the SNP have really forced this through. It's caused divisions within the party in ways that have not been apparent within the SNP in, uh, over the last 10 years or so. So what's your assessment of what's going on? Well, I mean, I think it is a really big issue. Um, there's not many issues, political issues, that really cut through. And I think a lot of people are talking about it. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people are very nervous about coming out in public or even on social media and talking about it, uh, particularly if they work in the public sector. Um, so it, it, it is a big deal. I think, actually, we should start just by... by saying a couple of things. First of all, the, you know, the vast majority of people who are concerned about this bill are very much live and let live when it comes to trans in the sense that if you really feel that you are don't fit in or you don't, you don't believe that you're in the, the right body or whatever, uh, people are generally very, very compassionate towards that. Um, so just going back to that, you know, the much retweeted JK Rowling tweet, you know, dress however you please, Call yourself whatever you like. Sleep with any consulting adult you'll ha who'll have you. Live your best life in peace and security. So there are genuine concerns about the, the, the most extreme examples of this and the fact that the people who are pushing this don't seem to be able to uh, recognise that there are real concerns about women's safety. There is a very high-profile case of a, of a male sex offender identifying as a woman being in a men's prison, being convicted of uh, assaulting another prisoner in that prison and then being moved to the women's estate. And that that just sets so many alarm bells going about the safety of women in women's prisons because of these uh, this potential change to the law. And there are plenty of other examples as well, whether it's women... Uh, competing against men in sport, um, whether it's, uh, you know, rape crisis centres and domestic abuse, refugees being open to men, um, just the whole idea that there's a recognition that while women in most aspects of modern life are absolutely the equals of men, there are situations in which they need to have single-sex spaces. And people can see that, and yet because of this ideology which is not only being promoted by the SNP and by the various lobby groups, trans lobby groups, um, working behind, in the, behind the scenes. And I one thing is that I don't think the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats have had enough criticism because having put forward amendments to try to deal with some of the safety issues around this bill and seeing those amendments fall, they still voted for the bill by and large with a few... Uh, people who defied the whip. Uh, and I, I just think that you know, the fact that there's such a clear majority has given the SNP and the Greens um, sort, of a, a sort of moral high ground on which to, to, to talk about why this bill should, should go through and its anti-devolution to, to stop it from going through. And I think that those parties should have said, right, well, these safety, safety measures, these precautions are not in place we should vote down this bill or it should be pushed back for reconsideration and they didn't they voted it through and I think that that is 
a massive problem. I think that's a, an important point, as, and, and it gives a bit of a, the lie to this idea that the SNP have just cynically created this situation as a, a, as a means of getting uh, the independence uh, discussion up the agenda again, and I think that's quite important to make that point. Also, I, I, I do think there's an element in this to, to which children are being a little bit forgotten about in this situation. I think Susan, in uh, when I talked to her, very astutely pointed out uh, that Maggie Chapman and people like that that are involved in this debate do want to take it on uh, and reduce the age limit even further and to, to make uh, uh, the situation applicable to even even younger people. So these are points, I think, that are important to pick up. But Claire, if I can turn to you, because you've been the person in Westminster this week, there was a fairly vitriolic debate after Alistair Jack made his announcement that the Section 35 notice would be introduced. How have it, how, how's it appeared from where you've been? Um, I think it's uh, incredibly toxic, and you can see how toxic it is from that parliamentary debate where you had uh, um, Rosie Duffield and Miriam Cates, you know, absolutely howled down. And obviously, it's very important in terms of Rosie Duffield because she's a Labour MP. She was being howled down by Labour MPs. I mean, Miriam Cates uh, had to suffer the ignominy of one particularly ignorant Labour male MP shouting out that she was transphobic and there's been a big fuss about that. But the general mood was that you could not go along with Section 35. I think that the reason why um, uh, this Section 35 is so significant is because the Conservative Party are actually the architects of much devolution policy. They aren't, they aren't opposed to it. They might not want to have a, a separated Scotland. They might not want independence. But in order to somehow uh, appease that independence drive they've moved closer and closer into devolution territory and pussyfoot around about the independence of scotland and wales and we saw the difficulties of that in the lockdown period where effectively they gave a, a, a much larger platform both to the uh, to mark drakeford and nicholas sturgeon than maybe they ought to have had in a time when we should have been a uk-wide approach to dealing with a, 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 a pandemic. So here we have a situation where it must be bad if they're invoking Section 35. This is the point I'm making, right? That, that, and that this is hardly a, a brave, courageous Tory administration. The truth is this piece of legislation will completely undercut and undermine equalities legislation. You might have as I do, have some qualms about some aspects of equalities legislation, but nonetheless, it's a UK-wide piece of legislation that will not be able to stand if the Gender Recognition uh, Reform Act is carried through. It's destroyed in the ways that Rob explained in terms of separate space for women, um, and as you went on to, to explain, Alistair, in terms of some of the difficulties in relation to young people, right? So there's whole reasons why Section 35 was invoked. That, however, gets completely lost in the issue. So the howling down in Westminster was not just a devolution issue, but was because the whole debate around sex-based rights versus gender is such a difficult subject and people are frightened to speak out on it. And therefore, it's just a minority who will argue that. It was interesting, actually, that... Um, 
that the SNP dissidents, of which there are not very many in Westminster, Joanna Cherry being the notable one, but there's a few others, find themselves in a difficult situation because they don't want to give any sucker to the idea that the UK government can overturn uh, the decisions of a, a, a democratically elected Scottish Parliament, but on the other hand, are abhorred by the bill. But one thing that we should stress in terms of democracy is this bill was not mandated by the Scottish people. You know, there, it's not as though there's been a big outcry, a big campaign amongst the Scottish public for a Gender Recognition Reform Act, right? People haven't been on the streets demanding that. Of course, activists have wanted it, but that's not the point. And so in some ways, one of the difficulties that Nicola Sturgeon has got is that this is not a popular bill at home. It might well be, as Rob has indicated, not something people speak out about, but it's certainly not popular. And every opinion poll indicates that there's a problem with it. The other thing is, is that it's cutting through. And I mean, this is in Wales now, but when I went, uh, 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 um, uh, you know, on Christmas holidays, in uh, the extended family in South Wales were going, what is this absolute nonsense about, you know, men pretending to be women? And, and they picked it up from the particular amendment which the SNP government and the Greens refused to accept, which was particularly on sex offenders and prisons, the point that Rob referred to. It was the fact that Nicola Sturgeon's government wouldn't accept what was a very modest anodyne reform part of the bill that would say that sex offenders, just sex offenders, shouldn't be allowed to go to the women's estate. And they said that was transphobic. That was implying that all trans people are sex offenders, which obviously it wasn't, and so on and so forth. And that had really kind of made even people who are kind of sitting it out, sitting on the fence, look again. The only other thing that I wanted to say in terms of the Westminster issue is that I was involved in a bit of a skirmish uh, a year and a half ago, I think, in the Lords, when the, the, the it was argued that it was very important that Northern Ireland were granted uh, abortion rights, uh, the same abortion rights as on mainland England and Britain uh, and, and so on. Um, and they, it was using the lockdown period where that had had to happen because everything was locked down. So one way or another, they were basically saying we should do this. Stella Creasy and a, a range of people in the Commons have consistently argued that Northern Ireland should have the same rights as everybody in the UK in relation to abortion. Which, as somebody who thinks that the women of Northern Ireland should have abortion rights, you'd think was a no-brainer for me. But I was actually anxious about the imposition of this against what is the devolved settlement. Anyway, my anxieties and qualms on that question have not been met by the any anxieties and qualms by the likes of Stella Creasy and the people who supported that side uh, in terms of Section 35, which is a similar point, which is that you're in a situation whereby a UK-wide equalities legislation is being completely undermined by a new bill from the Scottish Parliament. And I have to give credit here to uh, John Reid, who's one of the uh, uh, the security guards at the uh, House of Lords, who's blue Labour, most importantly, and has been following this. And he just kept saying to me, this is just double standards on anyone's basis, right? And so I think that in, in, in that sense, um, we don't want to get dragged into the total technicalities of this, but recognise that what ends up happening is 
that even though everybody talks the talk of devolution, in the end, people want to actually argue about politics. And that might be a woman's right to access uh, the right uh, abortion, or it might be uh, women's equality and women's rights uh, and so on. And everybody else wants to argue trans rights. And we don't want to just get dragged into the constitutional question, although it does raise problems or it raises the what are completely sensible, which is that the devolved settlements got holes in it, left, right and centre. And it's very difficult for the UK, the UK while we've got devolution that grants such powers to the devolved uh, 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 nations and regions. To go back to your point on Wales, probably one of the most predictable comments this week was from Mark Drayford, who complained that Wales couldn't get in on the action too. And it really does seem like um, for the devolved governments, there's a kind of impetus to show uh, or to demonstrate that they have the most progressive values in here, which I think uh, is, is is an interesting uh, way of looking at it. Um, you mentioned, Claire, that divisions that have opened up between uh, the, the Scottish government, and as Rob says, not just the SNP, but the Labour, Lib Dems and Greens collective, really, really as an elite uh, or as, as, as governing class, uh, and the distance that they seem to have from the Scottish public on this. But there also seems to be, and this I think was particularly apparent in some of the stuff that went on in Westminster, but also Scotland as well, divisions opening up internally between different people within the parties as well. Ella, I wondered if you had any thoughts on that and how what the implications are for some of this for the, for the, the, the parties themselves. Uh, yeah, I think it's really imp- the point that both Rob and Claire have made about this being uh, this not just being a kind of a simple legal matter, but also that, that it reveals something I think much bigger about um, you know parties and politicians' ability to tell the truth, to be able to have some kind of link to common sense and what it sort of says to a voter um, their their position on on not trans rights but on the idea of you know being you know that question that got thrown at politicians all the time do you know what a woman was was you know in one sense literally asking them and they couldn't answer but it was also a question that basically was saying are you going to are you going to you know pull my leg here or are you actually going to be able to tell the truth to be brave and say what you know to be true which is that you know the sky is blue and men are men and women are women um but there's you know if you it's interesting if you look back at for example the gender recognition act in the early 2000s you know the the labor party was pretty much for it the the scottish scottish politicians were SNP were lib dems what you would might expect and the conservatives were quite evenly split at the time and the Tory party didn't impose the whip it allowed a free vote um moving forward to you know 2022-2023 it's it's a very different picture I mean you know the fact that people like Kemi Badenoch, Suella Braverman um in the Labour Party obviously Rosie Duffield stand out as saying extremely normal things like you should only have a woman in a woman's prison um, shows you how how kind of uh, almost um, kind of school playground like Westminster has become because even though I'm I'm completely unconvinced that all of these people have had a damaging conversion and are suddenly um, believe that you know s- signing a bit of legal paper or promising that you're going to live as a woman for three months changes your whole being into a different 
sex they don't believe that what's happened is there's kind of Westminster and politics more generally has been infected with a kind of cowardice that means that no one is willing to stand up and say this isn't right because they have become so terrified by the label of transphobia I mean it's you know Sturgeon has been quoted left right and centre as saying that you know criticising Sunak and the Tories for using as she says the most marginalised groups in society as a political weapon talking about trans people but it's just it's it's she so should not get away with saying that because in fact you know lots of people talk about what this means for women rightly so because women are the you know the group in society that are most affected by this but actually there's a really important point about your average sort of trans person as rob was saying just you know the per- a person who just likes to live a bit differently or you know dress a different way whatever it is um is I think there's a real disservice being done to them as well, because rather than a kind of serious discussion in society about how we interact with each other and what our values are and how we respect each other and blah, 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 you know, important things, what's happened now is that there's been a kind of real um, toxic division and you either have to buy this sort of stonewall version of and mermaid's version of the trans rights position, which is extreme beyond uh, any kind of a sense of reality um or you're sort of or you're a transphobe and the and that's that the fault of that is down to people like Sturgeon or your parties like the SNP doing things as unreasonable as Claire said like refusing to have an amendment on sex offenders or refusing to bend on something as sort of obvious to most people as no you wouldn't allow uh young teenage boys into girls changing rooms in top shop or something like that but i think the you know the the impact on the parties in terms of this more broadly and you know what's going to happen i think it's while sunak and the conservative party have done the right thing in enacting um section 35 and all the rest of it you know we have to remember that it was the conservatives under Theresa may who were pushing for changes to the gender recognition act it's you know obviously the labor party's up to their eyeballs in this it doesn't matter that keir starmer has just said oh he thinks 16 is a bit too young i mean that's the bare minimum of sort of sensible approach to this and in fact lisa nandy a labor mp who usually is you know fairly sensible has been quoted in all the papers um in the last 24 hours talking about why we should take 13 year olds seriously when they say they want to change their gender i mean bloody hell so you know there i think there is either people in westminster who are being disingenuous on this or they've you know taken the soup and completely believe that there's a sort of that this approach to trans is the right one or they're they're cowards and they're not coming forward and like people like Rosie Duffield risking their neck politically and socially to be able to tell the truth and I think that there's this is a much bigger problem than just an issue with Scotland or the Lords um all all three of you have said you know Susan when you were talking to her talked about the fact that the trans issue often gets tagged on to abortion rights or it gets slipped into some other bit of legislation as if it's just a case of kind of being nice to people and we're just tidying up the legislation here and you know dotting a few i's and crossing a few t's it's so much more important than that and saying that it's so much more important than that doesn't make you uh, a bigot yes it does seem to me that um one of the 
particular difficulties of, the, of this period at a time when a, a Sunak-led Tory party wants to take things in much more measured, slightly more technical direction. And it, to me, it looked very much like that's what they wanted to do with the Section 35, was to keep it on a very narrow, quite technical legal ground, that as soon as they do that, it actually explodes out of control and comes back into the political realm. So the fact that an amendment had been put into the online safety bill on conversion therapy, and that had to be rectified by bringing forward the conversion therapy bill, uh, then revealed all of a sudden uh, that, that a lot of the people within the Tory party are, are, are actually supporters of trans rights. And, and all of a sudden, what had been an attempt to keep things narrow and straight down the line suddenly became a, 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 you know, a vibrant political issue once more. And I just wondered uh, what everybody thought in terms of how this affects the broad political situation it, it coming up and and I suppose also the uh, constitutional and devolution and union situation so I just wanted to uh, slightly correct something or which is that uh, no one is I, I hope is opposed to trans rights the thing is trans people have right now there's no right they don't have that is equal to everyone else right I mean if you're if you transition, you have rights <laughs> because nothing changes. You have rights. It's not as though political rights suddenly denied to you. What is being demanded is um, a, a recognition of trans people based on the, the, the absolute fallacy that they are changing their sex. And that has a major impact on rights that are already in existence. I'm just saying that because I think that this is the kind of thing that people get into trouble. I thought that Rob did a very nice explanation at the beginning that it's the ideological assault on a reality. Uh, and so we're all demanded that we say that something is true that is not true. And, and secondly, that established rights, like the, uh, the, the right to um, uh, have, for example, um, single sex spaces just to use that example or separate prisons they are not being fought out as you know it's not as though women have decided i am going to we're all going to go on the streets now and say we want to have mixed sex space uh, mixed sex wards in hospitals if you know what i mean is that would be a demand right it's been undercut by uh, um uh, is that the right word and and we can't even collect data I mean, how can you be in a situation whereby you talk about what's happening on women's wards in hospitals and maybe think that they are being treated differently to men's wards on hospitals if the people who are counted as women are not biological women? You, there's every, every single way that we have established of noting sex differences um, is undermined by this. Now, people like Ella and I, and I don't want to speak on Ella's behalf, but I heard her on the TV the other night, and I have some sympathy with her. There are times when I can't stand the fact there's a woman's prize for literature, right? Or I can't stand that there's a woman's, you know, I think, oh, for God's sake, we're equal, aren't we? And you want to get rid of rid of those things, those uh, sex differences in terms of uh, public recognition. But what I don't want is to pretend that somebody who is, uh, you know, if there's the kind of the best woman in business award, the best CEO, and it ends up being a trans woman, I don't want to pretend that that is the same as fighting through 
that women have fought through the glass ceiling and got recognised in business. Right? It's a ridiculous situation to be in. So in a way, that's where I think politically we should be having these discussions. And one of the most important things about this issue and about what's happened in Scotland is that you are told you can't raise any of these difficulties. That it's not straightforward. I, I don't uh, go along with people who say you should only ever call a trans woman a man in every circumstance. And I think, you know, I'll get over yourselves. I, I, I'm not as illiberal in a way as that. Um, I don't want to be in any way inhumane to those who have got genuine gender dysphoria. But I am concerned about a huge number of 13 and 14 year old girls declaring that they are women. And I am concerned about the fact that lesbian groups, as we speak, are being split down the middle. Because if you are a lesbian who wants to be in a lesbian only readers group, you're asked to declare that you are prepared to say that, you know, uh, gender identity is the way forward and that the, the sex, uh, same sex attracted people are being demonised as being bigots because they won't say that they fancy a man who's become a woman and so on and so forth. These discussions should be had out and they can't be had out. The good news about the Scottish issue, if we can keep it away only from the law courts, is that it begins to open it up, which is why I started off with the South Wales example. People are beginning to, beyond GB News and Talk TV land, but in general society think, what the hell is going on? Shouldn't we talk about it? And that, of course, at the Academy of Ideas would be our ideal scenario, that there's more conversation about it. Rob, just from you, just sitting in Scotland, how are you seeing the developments just now? Because it does seem to me that there's been a, quite a lot of shift uh, that's gone on over the past 10 years, well, since the 2014 referendum, where there's been a, you know, a little bit of a realignment in terms of the electorate and the parties. Brexit, Remain divides have become much more central to party political divides in Scotland. But as uh, a situation like this seems to pull apart even the political parties now, what what is the possible implications for that in terms of the independence debate? There is the, uh, going back to some point earlier about the about this this devolution, this Section Thirty Five question, uh, and whether this is being turned deliberately into a kind of uh, pro-independence thing or uh, I mean there's obviously room for that to happen um, and and for it to be used quite cynically to, to allow that to happen um, but I think that it also reflects the fact that um, independence is going nowhere and that there is now this coalescence around, amongst all the major parties um, to, to one extent or another around these kind of woke issues uh, and around, as you say, I mean, that Brexit divide still remains that, you know, th th those battle lines haven't really gone away. So um, in terms of what's going to happen in Scottish pol politics, I'm not quite sure, really, um, because, you know, you've got pro-union parties supporting the GRR. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's a very confusing situation. Um, I mean, because this could be kind of like the end of the road for the independence debate. You know, if they can't even get this through, then or even make hay from this particular issue, on a, as people have said, on, on an issue that's not popular with the Scottish electorate, where does the independence debate go from here? And what happens 
what's the parties become, what's the transition into, as it were, um, if, if, if that independence divide um, in, in any way becomes just like a bit meaningless. Claire. I just wanted to say that, um, and I think that, that it's been referred to, but just to be absolutely explicit, this is disastrous for the Labour Party. And the Labour Party in Scotland have behaved disgracefully. Uh, Rob explained that. And I think that Ella has talked about the broader picture. For me, the fact that the Labour Party cannot sort themselves out on this issue, which we always knew, but is revealed by this, uh, would indicate that even though they're likely to win the next election, they're all over the place. And an internal civil war in the Labour Party on this issue, anyone not knowing what I mean, do follow the own Jones nonsense uh, that's going on in his... Uh, uh, well, maybe don't follow it, but uh, have a look at the kind of the Labour left writing everybody off. So I think that's very important. The second thing is, is that um, we, we, you know, got given a, a very useful uh, list of laws that the Scottish Parliament have uh, written badly, and I hope that we can do a substack on this later uh, uh, next week. Um, but you know, everything from the be offensive behaviour of football uh, act from what year was it, uh, 2012, to the uh, um, the Named Person Act in relation to children and young people from 2014. The Scottish government have proved that of uh, bringing forward this legislation, a lot of the time it's virtue signaling legislation. This just not doesn't work as law. Now, if you heard my Inside the Lords last week, I was ranting on about how the, the UK doesn't know how to make laws. So uh, I, I don't want to go too far. But what, what I do think is, is that we spent so long in the EU with the EU writing our laws for us, that basically having left the EU, it's been left up to uh, homegrown legislators and the UK government aren't doing very well. But the Scottish government and indeed the Welsh government are doing very poorly. And they often fall at the first challenge of the law courts. They're just not good laws. They're virtue signalling. They're over-politicised and they're dangerously draconian in every single instance. So I think in in, in that sense, the idea of Scotland running totally its own affairs on everything must, even for the people of Scotland who are sympathetic to breaking from the union, make them nervous. Ella, I'm going to give the final word to you. Um, but I, one thing be interested in a comment on was I noticed that Stephen Flynn, who's the leader at the Westminster Group, in that debate after the Alistair Jack announcement, uh, called his Tory critics rabid gammon. Uh, and in an article just before uh, Christmas in the Times, uh, Kazia Dugdale, who's the former leader of the Scottish Labour Party, uh, very much posed what was going on in the gender debate as 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 kind of the a classic populism. She, she, that that was her 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 thought to, to her critics. So, is this is it too simplistic just to say that this is a sort of continuation of the Brexit wars and, and the, the populism wars, or kind of is there an element to that? that's going on just now? Well, don't want to keep harping on about the history of all of this stuff, but it is important to remember that that first uh, Gender Recognition Act came out of a response to a ruling in the European Court of Human Rights, which was about, centred around the idea that a person's inability to change their birth certificate, for example, from male to female, was a breach of their human rights. And so, I mean, that create it being being turned into legislation that has then 20 years later got us to the position we're in now has 
seems to me absolutely no link to any kind of popular demand. I mean, uh, I can't, you know, even though there is, you know, there's been this sort of consultation period for changes to the Gender Recognition Act in um, England at the moment, you know, the UK government, it, it's <laughs> like all consultations, uh, we could spend a whole other podcast talking about what a problem that is. But there has never been a kind of, you know, a... a <laughs> I don't know, even Extinction Rebellion style march on the streets for this kind of change. There hasn't so much of the way in which uh, the legal and sort of government approach to gender relations or the idea of sex or any kind of discussions about sex-based rights or anything like that has never had any kind of um, link to popular opinion. I mean, you can say this to your blue in the face. Rob's already, uh, I think, mentioned that. Um, or actually, there was a great article in The Spectator written by Ian McWhorter, which talked about the fact that, you know, the popularity of this in Scotland is irrefutably low. You know, there is there is there are not mass movements on Scottish streets arguing for this kind of change. And it's very, you know, this, you could say the same across the whole of the UK. But the, you know, it just shows you how uh, how la- intellectually lazy and also uh, sort of um, biased politicians are when they talk about how this is just a kind of a gammon thing, a Brexit thing, a populist thing, because what they really mean is that it's bad. It's what we don't like. It's, you know, um, it's <laughs> it, it's just, it, it's wrong. That's their kind of, their by, saying something's populist is their byword for saying something's wrong. Um, and it's incredibly shallow. And actually, more importantly, you know, I think that if you genuinely did have, in, you know, if you did have some kind of horrendous referendum, for example, on um, what people think about sex rights, or if you took a poll tomorrow and tried to understand how people felt about it, most people feel as both Rob and Claire have described, which is, you know, live and let live. Probably at this point, please, can we stop talking about him? Because people must be endlessly bored by listening to politicians decide whether or not someone in a skirt is a man or a woman. Um, But more importantly, that, you know, there are things that are true in our understanding of how we relate to one another. And that and men and women relating to, you know, the vast majority of us of whom, you know, that's what how relationships are, relationships are based, particularly, you know, heterosexual relationships are based on this understanding of men and women, lesbian relationships, gay relationships are on an understanding of um, solid beliefs in sex as a kind of a thing that is true and irrefutable. Um, you know, most people understand that to be quite an important part of how we relate to one another. You know, you said, Alistair, about the fact that this, the focus on, children hasn't been highlighted enough. I mean, trying to raise kids in a situation in which you say something as fundamental as men and women doesn't really exist or can be changed is, you know, you're going to really screw up children, never mind kind of the kids that want decide they want to change their gender or change their sex. I mean, even just trying to explain mum and dad to kids is going to become difficult if you if you go along these lines. So I think it's I think the really important point is that this, and Claire mentioned this, that this doesn't become a, a legal thing. And I think on both sides, there's a tendency to want to just fix this with clauses, fix it with the right kind of amendment or the right kind of lawyer in the right kind of court. And obviously it's important to have good legislation. But I think on a much more fundamental level, this is, it's a bit like the issue of free speech at universities. You know, bringing in a policy doesn't 
or removing a policy doesn't necessarily um, isn't the silver bullet for this issue we have to have a much bigger public conversation a genuine kind of populism which is that you get people in spaces like the battle of ideas festival where you get people talking about what it is we actually believe because i think once you start doing that the um the politicians who are pushing this kind of agenda and the activists like i already mentioned stonewall and mermaids will be revealed to be out on an island on their own because most people don't agree with them and then we can have a real discussion about democracy and what you know UK or Scottish or wherever law should reflect the desires and the aspirations of its citizens. And a piece of legislation like this goes, it seems to me, directly against those aspirations and desires. Thanks very much to you all. I thought there were some very useful thoughts in that. Certainly thoughts that we can uh, have bear in mind as we're developing the programme for Battle of Ideas Festival, which Ella mentioned, and where tickets are already available uh, for sale, early bird tickets, if you visit ba Battle of Ideas website, www.battleofideas.org.uk, then you can find out how to buy your early bird ticket. Um, so thanks to Ella Claire and Rob and Susan earlier um, we'll be back with another podcast of ideas soon